I'm excited. Today we're looking at, uh, if you're new, we love God's word. In fact, we study it verse by verse. And we are in the book of Acts. We find ourselves today in chapter two. And we're looking at verses 14 through 41. Well, we'll go back to verse 12, but I'm not gonna get through verses, uh, I'm not gonna get to verse 41 today. I'm just gonna be real honest. So it's a two-part, a two-part message. So if you're looking at your notes and you're like, wow, he's gonna go all the way to verse 41, don't think that, because I'm gonna go to verse 23 and then I'm gonna stop. But if I had to tie uh, the message today would be spirit-filled preaching. Spirit-filled preaching. And, and I'm, I, today, I, I want to emphasize the priority of preaching as we approach Acts chapter 2, verse 14. Our text today is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. It's the first recorded sermon of the church. Um, and it, it has major significance, this sermon that Peter, Peter preached. Major significance uh, and I, I cannot overemphasize the importance it has for the church today. It was definitely spirit-led, and the story finds itself in God's word for a reason. So today, as we come to this narrative, know that it's, it's not just a story, it's there for a reason. And in fact, I would be as bold to say it gives us a pattern for preaching, biblical preaching, and this pattern that we find here today is the pattern that we need to follow today. So before we start un unpacking this text, I want to say a few things in, regard, in regards to the importance of preaching. I mean, after all, this was the very first thing that the early church did. The very first thing they did after they got filled with the Holy Spirit, after they had this amazing experience, they preached. I think something was established that day on Pentecost, and we need to take note of it. And I want to get really personal today. I always get real personable with you, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna be real with you today. I wanna share something very personal because I've noticed a shift in, in ministry circles today that concerns me. I see so much of the world's standards creeping into church culture. I think it's a pretty common trend today in churches where the word of God is minimized and particularly the preaching of the word of God something we are seeing more and more and more. The role of preaching in the church is diminishing, and as we continue to go forward, it seems like the church is looking at the role of preaching, it's really gonna become smaller and smaller and smaller, and entertainment is, becoming, is coming to replace preaching in our generation in the church today. And of course, I'm, I'm speaking generic here, I'm not speaking against New Heights, or, or a church across the street, or I'm just speaking in general. But it seems that entertainment is becoming the goal in a lot of churches today because entertainment is what brings the crowds. Give the people what they want so that more will come. And we're beginning to believe this lie that this approach is more effective avenue for promoting the gospel in our generation instead of preaching. We're starting to believe that lie. And let me be really clear about something today. All throughout history, all throughout history, God has blessed the proclamation or the preaching of his word. And God is not gonna stop blessing the preaching of his word in 2023. But today we, we find ourselves in a culture, it's, it's defined by fame. In fact, I would go so far as to say we live in a culture that's saturated by fame. We see our worth based not on our standing with God or within our capability of doing something good for the community or for the sake of humanity, but instead our culture today sees the acquisition of fame as the ultimate goal in life. 
Our value is based upon how many followers we have, how many fans we have, how many likes we have. And our culture is believing a lie that if somebody has fame, then that's going to be enough. If somebody has fame, then that means they've succeeded. Our cultures place fame above integrity. They've placed fame above character and moral values. Now, I want to tell you something. There was a time in the church that when one was called to ministry, it was a sacrifice. I'm not, I'm not even talking about salary, although that was the case too. My grandpa used to laugh uh, when I was little when pastors talked about salaries because he came from the day and age where if you're called to pastor, you're lucky if you got a salary. You know, and thank God for salaries. Don't take mine away. <laughs> but there was a time where when you were called to ministry, it was a sacrifice to say yes. And more often than not, you were saying yes because of the one who was doing the calling and not because it was something you desired to do. Ministry's hard, right? <laughs> okay, sheep bite. <laughs> Tell you what, they may be cute and soft and cuddly and then they bite. Ministry's tough. But here's the deal too. What, what job isn't tough? Everybody, I love my job. You guys have jobs that are tough too, right? Jobs are tough. But there was a time where ministry, it's like you didn't go into ministry unless you were really called to do it. And then you really needed to know, God, is this you? Are you, are you calling me? Is this what you want me to do? <gasps> okay, if you're calling me to do it. Now, what breaks my heart so much is in, even in ministry in our church circles, is I see this desire for fame, and it's very alive in the church today. In fact, I remember my first ministry position, well, at least with my wife Liz, our very first ministry position, we, had, we were youth pastors, and we did this call at the end of a service. Those of you who, who are called to ministry, come up front, we want to pray with you. We wanted to help with scholarships and stuff, getting them to different Bible colleges. And I remember a, a very charismatic student coming forward and uh, very enthusiastically saying he was called. And as we began to talk, I'm trying to get a feel for where, where we're gonna, how, how we're going to help him in this. And it, it became very clear to me, maybe maybe after five minutes of talking to him, that he was not entering into ministry because there was a call. He was not entering into ministry because he wanted to serve anybody. He was entering into ministry because he wanted to be a celebrity. And that's how he viewed ministry. Man, Pastor Justin, I am really good in front of a crowd. <laughs> that's what he would tell me. Really good in front of a crowd. And you're seeing this more and more. I mean, we measure the success of our work as pastors by weekend attendance, how much we're liked. I mean, that's just human nature. But what I see happening more and more is that we're starting to place more value on those things than we are uh, placing on, on following the New Testament pattern of what preachers are supposed to be preaching and the New Testament pattern of how churches are supposed to be growing. And it concerns me. I see more and more young pastors entering into ministry for all the wrong reasons. They're seeking fame because nowadays we can be pastors and we can be celebrities. Ministry is not a profession or an option. It's a calling of God. And I want to say something because the Apostle Paul expressed it really well in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. He says, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. A part of the calling in ministry is to preach God's word. 
God's word. Did you hear me? God's word. And I'm going to say it again. The call is to preach God's word. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says it really good. This is one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He studied all kinds of different revivals and different awakenings, and he saw God do some incredible things through his church in London. And here's what he said. Any study of church history, and particularly any study of great periods of revival or awakening, demonstrates above everything else just this one fact, that Christian church during all such periods has spoken with authority. The great characteristic of all revivals has been the authority of the preaching of God's word. There seemed to be something new, extra, and irresistible in what the preacher declared on behalf of God. I think back to the quote I quoted last week. D.L. Moody, who explained the baptism of the Holy Spirit, said it wasn't that I was preaching anything different. I was committed to the text before, but the same style of preaching and the same sermon of preaching, being committed to God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit, he began to see hundreds come to Jesus. He didn't get away from God's word He focused more intensely on it, and he depended upon the Holy Spirit. If one is called to be a pastor, that means they're they're called to preach his word. And you see today, as we look at our our text, we're going to see that Peter was committed to the call. He He was called to preach God's word, and he was willing to preach God's word. He preaches a really hard text to a very difficult crowd. It was a sermon that could have costed Peter his life, but at this point in Peter's life, he isn't in ministry to be a celebrity. I'm telling you, there's all kinds of stuff out there. You can find endless books on, these, uh, on how to grow your church. You can go to different conferences and attend different webinars on how to grow your church. And many of the things that, that, that they're saying is, is you've got to build a church for unchurched people. I want to stop here because I want to, I want to tell you the church exists to, we're, we're, a, we're on this mission to rescue souls. So I understand this, this idea, hey, our church should be reaching souls. But here's the deal. The church is the body of Christ. The church is a movement of people that are convicted and live by that conviction. And then they go out and they live their life on a mission. It's not that you guys get to say yes to Jesus and then you come on Sunday and and that's when the real ministry takes place. You've done your job if you've invited a, a unsaved friend or neighbor to church on Sunday and it's the preacher's job to get them saved. Now, when you say yes to Jesus, he puts you on a mission. All of a sudden, you're living out God's mission. And the church, you could take away the walls. We don't need a building. We don't need the LED wall. We don't need the musicians. All we need is the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And we go on mission and we're faithful to preach that word and people can get saved. So I'm not, I hear all these things. You've got to build, you've got to design your church for someone who doesn't know Jesus. And I just, I can't find that pattern in the New Testament. I don't see that. And, and one of the things that I, and I, I've been reading some more and more this week so that I can preach this, this message, but one of the things I keep reading over and over and over is you don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. And I, under, I, I at least can say this, I understand. We want as many, we don't want anybody to walk through these doors and feel uncomfortable in the sense that somebody was judging them 
or that they, they felt like somebody was going to treat them bad or because of their background. We don't want that at all, but I don't understand how I can preach this, this word and not make somebody squirm just a little bit. Because I squirm when I read this book, and I've been a Christian my whole life. But when I read this, there are passages that really make me uncomfortable, and I've been serving Jesus all my life. So I don't understand how, I can't, I can't look at this and say, I gotta, I gotta somehow make it to where it doesn't make someone uncomfortable. Some books and well-known pastors and authors are saying we need to eliminate a form of preaching that would make people feel unwelcome. Again, I want everyone to feel welcome. But as I preach God's word, I, I, I mean, the spirit convicts. That's how somebody gets saved. I mean, if you don't tell somebody they're lost, they don't know they're lost. They don't know they need saved. Keep, kept reading over and over. Sermons need to be short. Man, we don't do that here. <sighs> sorry, not sorry. It's like the Reese's commercial. Anyway, sermons need to be short. They need to be entertaining and inspiring. And any, any other form of preaching in the life of church should be eliminated. Because that kind of preaching should not be the pattern for the church today. Here's the deal, though. If you're a student of God's word... If you know God's word, it's hidden in your heart, you would understand how much of a gross injustice this concept is to God's pattern and God's design of the New Testament genius of Christianity and its dynamic. I'm not opposed to leadership classes. I'm not saying that today. I'm not, I'm not opposed to pastors going and getting training. I mean, for crying out loud, I just entered into a doctorate of ministry program at Southeastern University, and guess what my concentration is? Church leadership. And I, it's going to benefit me greatly. I'm not opposed to good leadership books. I'm not opposed to good conferences. I think they have their proper place in the church and our pastors need good leadership principles. But here's what I do believe, that seminaries and Bible colleges need to be producing ministers who can teach and preach with, the pow- with power the word of God. I never want New Heights Church to develop a culture that bogs down the pattern of the Holy Spirit moving because we're lost in all kinds of foolishness that is secondary to the power of preaching the word of God. Listen to what Greg Gordon says. I love it. He says, we need to get back to the Bible as the sole authority and guide for the church's purpose, function, and plan in the world. We have never had so many ideas of what the church is and never has there been so many ideas expressed without the counsel of the word. I want to talk to you today about the important centrality of the word and not just the word but preaching of the word. And I want to talk to you about this because this is where we find ourselves in the text today. It's not because this is, this is my soapbox. We find ourselves here today. Here in this Story Here in chapter 2, we come to Peter's sermon following Pentecost. And some of you are thinking, well, that's your job, Justin. You're going to give us a sermon on preaching? Why, why do we need to learn about preaching? Well, first off, like I said, it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, then it's important. And I believe that by looking at Peter's sermon, we're going to learn about preaching so we can understand what happens when we come in here and we study the Word of God together. If we want God to move in our day and we want to experience a fresh new move of the Holy Spirit, then we're going to need to be serious about his word. We're going to have to pay attention to his word. We're going to have to, to make his word a priority. And as your pastor, I'm going to have to continue to create a culture where God's word is the priority. Not entertainment. 
God's word. Even when it makes us uncomfortable, even when it goes against what society has to say, even if it gets me in hot water, I need to prioritize God's word. And so would you look with me? We're going to go back to verse 12. I know we looked at it last week, but will you look with me real quick? We're going to look at verse 12 through 15. Let's pray before we do that. Father God, we come to you right now, and we just want to take a moment tell you how much we love you, how grateful we are for your grace and your mercy, how grateful we are for your word. Your word is our guide. And so today, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do what I cannot do, and that's speak to the hearts of everyone who's in here today. Would the truth of your text um, be accepted today? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Look with me at, real quick. At verse 12, it says, it says, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Verse 14, but Peter, <laughs> Peter, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Stop for a minute. The first sermon ever preached in the history of the church, or the very first sermon preached in the church, and it's Peter who's preaching it. I love that. Think about Peter. Peter, isn't it ironic that Peter is the one who's preaching this message? Peter couldn't stand up to a little girl the night that Jesus was arrested. But now the Bible says that he's standing. And the Greek word for standing here, it doesn't doesn't just mean to stand up. It means to take a stand or to make a stand. Because that's what somebody does who's committed to the word of God. They're willing to stand up. They're willing to take a stand no matter what society is saying. That's what men of God do. That's what preachers of the gospel do. They stand. They take a stand. You think about this. The dude that couldn't even stand up to a little girl is now taking a stand for Jesus in front of thousands of people. You want to know what kind of difference the Holy Spirit being poured out makes in a life? Well, here you go takes a little scaredy cat and turns him into a preacher in front of thousands. That's what the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will do. Now, Peter, this guy, he wants, he, he's full of the Holy Spirit. He wants to answer this question, what does all this mean? He jumps at the bit. He stands up, and his sermon is anointed. And the reason I say that is not just because of the results, and we're going to see that in a little bit, but also because of the Greek here that's used in verse 14. If you look at the, the words, address them. See, our English, version, uh, our English version of these words hides this, but the word derives from a Greek word which means to address someone enthusiastically. In fact, it's the same word that's previously used in chapter 2, verse 4, when the disciples began to speak in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. I'm not saying that Peter's speaking in tongues here. He's speaking in a known language, his language. But this, the, the sermon that Peter's preaching is, is anointed, It's anointed. And I want you to understand this, that this kind of preaching, it's not not like Peter could get up and explain what he's explaining because he's such a skilled public speaker. It's the whole idea here in the Greek. He was being carried by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was doing something through Peter, okay? That's, That's what Holy Spirit preaching does. 
and it's the first hour of the day, that means it was 6 a.m. because the third hour of the day was 9 a.m. and 9 a.m. was the Jewish hour of prayer and 10 a.m. was the morning meal. So Peter stands up and says, listen, we're not drunk. But you know what verse 14 does tell me? That there's always gonna be mockers. And if you've been a follower of Jesus for long, you're gonna experience mockers. I have people in our church who, they get, they get saved and they're excited and they, they're in love with Jesus and they go back and tell their family and they're mocked. I love some of my favorite preachers that I listen to on my podcast. None of them grew up in the church, so most of my favorite preachers, uh, there was a time in their adult life where they met Jesus Christ and accepted him and uh, most of them tell the story about how they were mocked by their family. You know, they'd go back, their brother or their sister would be like, oh, Jesus freak. There's always gonna be mockers. When these mockers said that they must have found a new wine, I want you to know they're being sarcastic here. It's because these people didn't know the purpose of what was happening and, and they just jumped to the conclusion that it had no purpose. In fact, the Greek here in verse 14 indicates that it wasn't just words but mocking gestures as well. They're getting made fun of here. Just because the Holy Spirit's gonna fill you and empower you doesn't mean that there are gonna be those that don't accept your message. When we say yes to Jesus, when we embrace the call, we need to know that there are gonna be those that mock us. Sometimes I feel mocked even within the church. Sometimes when I'm with my fellow ministers and we're talking about how, hey, we wanna see the church grow and here's, here's our plan to do it. We're gonna rely on the Holy Spirit. We're gonna go back to his word. We're gonna get back to the basics. Sometimes I feel mocked. <laughs> really, that's your plan? Yeah, that's my plan. <sighs> Look with me, verse 16 and 17. It says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Wow, Peter doesn't leave anybody out. So Peter began to give them a scriptural basis for what they were experiencing, this phenomenon that they had just observed. Peter stands up, he takes them back to the word of God. Think about that. Because I, I, want, I want you to hear something I want to say something that I believe is very important, and so I need you to hear this. I think that you are on dangerous ground when you are seeking spiritual phenomenon but can't give any scriptural basis. Because whenever you get in, into the area of spiritual phenomenon, people are going to ask questions. What is this? What's going on here? And if you're practicing some kind of spiritual experience, but you can't give a solid scriptural basis, I think you're on thin ice. I think you're, it's dangerous ground. I'm not interested in any kind of phenomenon if it doesn't have a solid scriptural basis. And New Heights Church will never promote spiritual phenomenon without scriptural foundation. You hear me? This is important. So Peter, he's leading them right to the word of God. Man, that jumps out at me. I'm sorry. When I see that, here's this leader. Here's this amazing thing that's happening. He gets up and he takes them to scripture. He says, let me explain to you what's happening. Let me explain to you what's going on. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And now notice how Peter quotes from the prophet Joel. Because what does that tell you? Peter knew the word of God. He knew God's word. And I'm making note of that because because I want to point out to you, you need to know the characteristics of the men and women that God chooses to use. It's important. And we'll be following this as we go through the, the book of Acts. But one of the first characteristics that we find of the men that God uses is that they were men of prayer and that they knew scripture. Peter and the others, they were praying, not just before meals or just before bedtime. They were praying daily, intentionally making sure that they spent time in prayer. God is going to use people who are praying and people who know his word. Peter had a good working knowledge of the word of God. He's able to quote from Psalms. And I'll tell you what, Psalms, that's... It's not something that's going to jump out and grab your attention, yet he's quoting from Psalms. He's putting them together. He's making sense out of them. Now, as this phenomenon is taking place, and they're saying, what does this mean? And he said, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And I want you to focus on one word, because it usually gets people hung up. You see that little phrase, last days. You see that? And in the last days it shall be. Now, this makes some of us really uncomfortable here today. A lot of skeptics and critics of the Bible will point to this. These fools have been saying it was the last days for 2,000 years, and you guys, where's Jesus? What's happened? Okay, it makes some of us uncomfortable because the fact that Peter said it 2,000 years ago. And yet here we are 2,000 years down the road, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. But it's important to understand that the last days was a technical phrase that they use, and, it, it, and here's what it would have meant to them. The last days begins at the first coming of Jesus, and it ends at the second coming. Okay? This would have been how they saw the second coming, and I believe they did think the Lord would come back at any moment. They lived like that. They lived with the anticipation that God could come back, and I want you to know that we should live with the same anticipation. That's why the Bible only gives us certain information concerning his coming back, his return. He wants you to know he's going to come back. He's going to return. He said he will, and he will. And he wants you just to live ready. We don't have to spend countless hours trying to figure out and calculate the exact day that Jesus is going to come back. We've done that in the past. There's been books written, and it's been horrible for the church. Jesus wanted us to know he would have told us. Here's what he does tell us, though. All throughout Scripture, he tells us to be ready, right? Be ready. Be ready. The last days are the days of the church, and and Pentecost is the birthday of the church, and so the last days begin technically at the first coming of Jesus, the birth of the church, and it ends when Jesus comes back. And so there's no reason at all to get confused with this phrase The disciples were in the last days, and you and I today, we're in the last days, okay? And there's some scriptures I I gave, but sound booth, I'm going to skip over some of those, um, and I'm going to keep moving on. I think every generation probably believes that they're, they're in the last days. I remember my grandparents would always, they survived World War II, and they survived, uh, 
Adolf Hitler and all the terrible things that were going on in the world. And I remember my grandpa would tell me he really thought that those were the last days that Jesus was going to come back. He just couldn't imagine all that evil. And then my parents who survived the 60s and the 70s, they thought Jesus was going to come back because of all the crazy things that were taking place during their time. And then my generation, we think the Lord could come back at any time too. And, and when COVID hit, uh, that's what we were, everybody in my generation was thinking that. We hadn't experienced anything like that and it was crazy. And surely the Lord's got to be coming back. We're in the last days, right? He could come back at any point. But I would want to desire to stress this to you today, okay? Because a lot of times we'll focus on the, the, the things that are told to us will be a part of the last days. And then, and we always focus on some of the scary negative aspects of it. Let me tell you, though, what we're, we're, we're pulling from Acts chapter 2 is that the last days we're going to see an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see prophecy. We're going to see visions and dreams, signs and wonders. We're going to see salvation to whoever believes. And we're going to kind of see and experience this retaking the dominion over creation that Adam lost Satan. Focus on those things. Get busy. We got a job to do. We got a mission to do. Doesn't matter when Jesus is coming back. What matters is that you and I are ready and that we're, we're going out making the most out of every day that we have that Jesus, God has given us here on this earth to bring as many people to heaven as we can. That's what matters. This is what Pentecost meant then and it's what a larger and larger segments of the body of Christ are discovering today. It means the same thing and they're applying it to their task to go out and reach people for Jesus ministries today that are making a, a huge difference are characterized not by man's capability, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to know something. The last days, we're in it. They're continuing. And Joel's prophecy is going to continue to be fulfilled today. Amen? Look with me. Verse 17 through 21. And in these last days, it shall be, we already read this. I want to read it again. It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on, on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great in magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's quoting out of Joel chapter two and, and I love it because what does he quote? The promise of God to send the Holy Spirit upon the world. That's what he's quoting. That's what he goes back to. And it's significant. We, we already talked about the fact that we're in the last days. But think about the application for you and me today. If we're in the last days, that means that the empowering of the Holy Spirit isn't limited to just a part of church history, that part of church history, but it's to continue until Jesus comes back. And it would be wrong of us to try to put limitations on the Holy Spirit, wanting to empower his followers to fulfill God's mission. Think about the growth of the early church. Think about this. Historians, they've always been puzzled uh, for, forever about how in the world that this church could, could have grown to be what it is. How Christianity uh, spread so fast in its earlier days. The group that Jesus left behind, they were pretty small, rel rel relatively a small group. They weren't influential people by any means. They were fishermen and carpenters. And Christianity in, didn't, 
It didn't advance through conquest like other religions have. It didn't do that. In fact, the first 400 years of Christianity, no one even picked up a sword to, to, to defend it. It didn't, make its rich, it didn't make its followers rich. They didn't, they didn't make a lot of money from doing this. In fact, it, it, most of the time when somebody said yes to Jesus, it meant them losing their house, their home, their family, fortunes. And then even beyond all of that, the church was accomplishing things that seemed absolutely impossible. They were experiencing a multi, multiracial community. They taught that all people, all people, were of equal worth in the eyes of God. It didn't matter if you were Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, master, servant, man or woman. All people were of equal worth in God's eyes. I just want to stop for a minute because that's one of the most powerful testimonies of Pentecost, that it brought people together from all walks of life. I really struggle sometimes to see churches today talk about how they're spirit-filled and they can't figure out a way to get along. Church is supposed to be a little foretaste of heaven. We get to heaven, it's going to be all people. I loved, Liz and I got to pastor an international church in Bangkok, Thailand, and one of the greatest joys that we had is going to a church every single Sunday with over 55 different nationalities represented. And I remember when Liz and I started our church there, we, we had, I think we had 20-something people meet in our apartment and there were over, I think, 17 nationalities represented in that very first meeting. And I made the mistake of asking, what is church? Because <laughs> I got 17 different answers, what church is. But you know what? We found a way to do church. Why? Because we were the body of Christ. From 17 different places in the world that had 17 different cultures, 17 different languages. But we came together because we were the body of Christ. And whatever differences we had were just little in comparison to what we had in common. Jesus King of kings, Lord of lords, soon returning king. Come on. Man, so how did it happen with this, with this early group? I read a quote from a professor at Yale, and I have no idea how to say his name, so I'm not even going to, but I'll say his first and his middle name, and then you can guess how to say his last name. Kenneth Scott professor at Yale. Listen to what he said. He says, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It's clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Because nothing else could explain the surge of the early Christian movement. What caused this release of energy lies outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. He then goes on to say this, but before I am a historian, I am a human. How can I close my eyes to the obvious explanation that something supernatural happened? <laughs> Listen to me, church. I'm convinced the greatest need in the church today is, is a renewal of the teaching on the subject of the Holy Spirit. Because the world in which the church lives in now so needs to experience the fullness of the Spirit. We need a renewal of teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit where your life will be empowered to go into this world in which we live and be a witness for Jesus Christ. It's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to make you an effective witness. I know there's been a lot of preaching and teaching that makes it about something else, but that's what the Bible teaches it is to be an effective witness. I believe the only hope for our nation today is a spiritual awakening. 
has to begin in the church. We need a fresh movement of the Holy Spirit on our lives, on our hearts. We need to be seeking, thirsting, and asking. Look with me real quick at verse 22 and 23. It says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. But this Jesus, this is where Peter preaches a really tough message. Hardest point Peter had to make to a really difficult crowd. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter takes this crowd to Jesus. Biblical preaching is all about Jesus. Biblical preaching should always focus on Jesus. It should always take us to Jesus. 1 Peter 1.20, speaking of this Jesus, it says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Isaiah 53, five, speaking of Jesus, the Jesus that Peter's preaching says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is preaching. It takes you to Jesus. It's about Jesus. Not about the one preaching. It's about Jesus. He's telling them they were wrong about Jesus. They killed him. It's not a popular message Peter's doing right now. Do you understand the gravity of what Peter was preaching here? There are some who would say that preachers today need to take a lighter approach to preaching. Maybe they should try to be funny, more humorous. Can you imagine? Hey, Peter, be more funny. Crack a joke up there. Don't tell them they crucified the Son of God. That is going to make them uncomfortable, Peter. Don't do that. They're not going to come back and listen to you. Say something that's going to make them laugh. Be witty. You see, when I come to preach in this place every Sunday, I do so knowing that this sanctuary today is full of people and people who watch online whose marriages could be on the brink of falling apart and on the verge of divorce. That I have people in here who have lost loved ones and are trying to cope with grief. That I have people fighting depression and addiction. I have people whose sin has ravaged their life and have left them hopeless. And I know that there are single moms who are struggling with just the school routine and how to do it on their own because the guy who promised I do forever has left them. I know that there are people who have been told it's terminal and they've been given a timeline. And they're trying to figure out how to say goodbye in the middle of this. I have families who have young children who have been in the hospital all of their young life and mom and dad whose second home is the hospital. And they're living a life of heart-wrenching agony because they have no idea what tomorrow holds. I have people who have been lied to by society, a lie that's really demonic, lies that have crept in and promised a false notion of happiness, but instead has left people in utter despair. And I'm supposed to come to you and tell you a joke. I'm, I'm supposed to come and amuse you today. Say something witty. Keep it light. It's what the books are telling us today. This is what the books and the experts are telling pastors to do today. Keep it light. Keep it witty. But I, I can't go before God. I can't stand before God and instead I preach something witty to your sheep. I can't do it. 
I cannot do that. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, uh, of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then verse 6, just two verses later, says this, for God who said, light, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in the middle of this, it's sandwiched in, listen, verse 5 says this, for what we proclaim, some, some translations say, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sakes. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ. I cannot stand here this morning and deny the fact that there is a battle going on between the God of this world and the true God. Blinding minds and shining light in the hearts. And in the middle of that is, is the preaching of the Son of God who gave his life to conquer sin and to conquer death and to conquer the grave so that we could know his glory and we could know his grace. And I don't understand at all how someone could say, we don't need to preach all the Bible. We just need less teachy moments. We need more entertainment. We need casual talks about God. We need to have discussions and conversations and casual talks. Folks, listen to me. Listen to me. The devil is doing everything he can to blind our minds from the infinite holiness of God and the fact that our sin is infinitely offensive to him. And that his wrath is infinitely just and his grace is infinitely precious. Do you hear me? And every one of our lives, every life in this church, every life in this community is but a short time. You are on borrowed time. And in the end, all of us, we're either headed to, to an eternity with God or an eternity in hell. Biblical preaching has to carry the weight of these things. It has to. The true God wants to shine light into our hearts and he, he wants to bring us into submission to a loving savior. And the devil wants us to burn in hell for eternity. And I will not stand in the middle of that battle and give a casual talk about God every week when I have the sacred opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ every week. I won't do it. And I, I want you to know something it's hard on a pastor when you've got to preach certain difficult texts. I don't just say this, but Liz and I pray. We, have, we love our job. I, I love this church. I love getting to be a pastor. I love getting to do life with you. Liz and I wake up and we pray for you by name. If you are on the church manifest, you are prayed for by Liz and myself. We pray for our sheep. We love you. We've been called by God to come and help you in this journey and walk this journey with you. And the last thing that I could do is give you a casual talk. Starve you with an unhealthy diet. I'm going to get up every Sunday and I'm going to preach. And sometimes the sermons are going to be really challenging and they're going to rub you the wrong way. And you just need to know this, that when I read it myself, it rubs me the wrong way but I want to be in heaven with you for eternity. That's what I want. I want one day for you and me to be able to be an attorney forever and worship Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. That's what I want. So I'm willing, I guess, to maybe offend some now because I care about the long haul. I care about you. 
Peter's preaching was about Jesus and Jesus is the heart of the gospel. His life and his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection from the dead. We're only looking at half of the sermon today. Next week we're gonna see that he preaches on the exaltation and how Jesus is, is the Messiah, savior of the world. The preaching that Peter did that day, it was harsh. It led them to the knowledge that they were wrong about Jesus. You see, in Jesus' days, there were a lot of different theories about him. People had all kinds of things they wanted him to be. Some people wanted him to be a prophet, calling, back, calling people back to religion. Others wanted him to be a political messiah, delivering them from oppression and overturning the corrupt Roman Empire. And others just kind of wrote Jesus off as a fake or a phony. This is a showman with a strange power over people. But you know what? Jesus wouldn't conform to everyone's expectations. He claimed to be God. He demanded absolute lordship over his followers. He forgave people's sins, something the Jews thought was blasphemy. He let people worship him. He even went so far as to say that if they didn't worship him, the rocks and the trees would cry out in praise of him. He claimed to be on a mission to save people, and he claimed he was the only way. And some people really liked Jesus but didn't know what to think about all this talk about him being God. Many encouraged him, Jesus, stop. Stop this. If you've ever watched The Chosen, which I recommend you do, it's incredible. You see this in The Chosen. Some of the people he grew up with just didn't know how to handle these claims he was making. Claims that he was the Messiah. Claims that he was God. Stop telling people that. But he wouldn't. And so they crucified him. Peter said that in the resurrection, however, God changed their minds because he declared Jesus to be who he was. Lord, which means God, not another religious prophet, but the creator of the universe and Christ, which means the only savior. Not one way out of many, but the only way, the only name under heaven by which anyone can be saved, Jesus Christ. Biblical preaching points to Jesus. And I don't know what some of you today want Jesus to be. Maybe, maybe some of you look at him as simply a great teacher, someone who had morals and, and values that you respected. Maybe some of you think he was okay for some people, but he, he doesn't have to be the only way for everyone. But Jesus said he was God in flesh and that he is the only way. The only way. Those are the claims that Jesus made. And it could be a message that offends a lot of people. It's an audacious claim of the Christian faith that there's only one way to heaven that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we believe. Not most, not some, all. Since all have sinned, all of us are lost and all of us are in need of being saved. And this saving we, we so badly need can come from only one savior since there's only salvation, there, there is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we believe there's only one way to be saved, only one way to heaven, Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to a relationship with God. No one comes into the presence of God. No one gets into heaven except through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And here's what I wanna do today. I wanna give you a chance to pray to receive Jesus if you never have. And it's not something hard. You just do it by faith. It's the prayer of salvation. So I'm gonna close in prayer. And then I'm gonna challenge you to, I've got a challenge for everyone in here. The worship team's gonna lead us. We always close, we dismiss. You can leave if you have to, but you know what we do? Because we believe in the importance sometimes of waiting on God. 
and we want people to have a chance to respond to the preaching of God's word. So we've just challenged you, but our worship team is going to stay up here and they're going to keep playing. They're going to keep leading us into an attitude of worship. And I want to give you guys the opportunity to respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life. So here's what I want to do. If you've never accepted Jesus, today's your day. You could do that. It's that easy. And I know most of the time, and I've done this many times, preachers say, everybody close your eyes, but I want to make it public, even if it means somebody doesn't do it, because I want you to know what you're doing, and it's something worth celebrating. It's a public declaration. I'm going to make Jesus Lord of my life. If, if you've not done that, all you, all you have to, you don't have to come up here. It's not like when you cross this area, you're going to experience salvation. All you have to do is say, Jesus, I'm receiving you today as my Savior. You are the Lord, and I surrender right now to you. That's it. Admit you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is who he said he was and confess your sin to him. That's it. That's all you got to do, and, and, and you're saved. You're going to experience salvation. If that's you today. Go ahead and just raise your hand. Not because we're gonna, we want to embarrass you, because we want to celebrate with you today. That's it. That's you. If you've never accepted Jesus, today is your day. You could do that. If you're watching online, you could do it right here online too. All you have to do is, Jesus, I'm receiving you today as my Savior. You're the Lord, and I surrender right now to you. But now this is where I want to challenge the whole church, those who have been serving Jesus their whole life, those who have been serving Jesus for just a few weeks. Here's where I want to challenge you, okay? I want to challenge challenge us as a church and as individuals. I want to challenge us as a church to make the word central in our lives. And I want to give you an opportunity to say, I'm, I'm going to be more active in making the word of God central in my life. So I, don't, I want to invite you today to pray this. Today I'm committing to make God's word central in my life as we make God's word, word central in our church. Can you do that with me today? Can you respond to the Holy Spirit? Say, I'm going to make God's word central in my life as we as a church make it central in the church life. And what I'd like to do is give you an opportunity. This is between you and God. I'd like to give you this challenge to begin hiding the word in your heart. Now you have to make a decision today that you're going to be intentional about this. It It doesn't come naturally to us at all. If you're not intentional, you're going to end up not doing it. I promise you. You have to be intentional about making God's word a priority in your life. I want you to get serious about studying his word. So much that I want you to pray that the Holy Spirit would help you to do this. I want to give you that opportunity. I want you to reprioritize your life no matter what, no matter what that means or what that looks like. I want God's word a priority in your life and in my life. We will do whatever we have to do to make it a priority in our life. We as a church, we're going to devote ourselves to the word. I want to invite you to take a step and say, if the word of God is going to be central in this church, the word of God is going to be central in my life. And again, I can't hold your hand. I can't force you to do that. It's something you're going to have to do. But I'm going to tell you, be radical about it. It's worth it. Be radical about it. I don't care if you've got to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning. Be radical. Do this. Make God's word a priority. Father, we love you and worship you and praise you. We thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your son. And we thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray over this church as we enter into the year 2023 
that this would be a year where we would get back to God's word and make it the most important thing that we do, that we would prioritize it. God, that we'd be known as a church that loves, that loves your word. And I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would begin to transform and change lives as we do that. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.